I'm Christina Jurekides, and we're committed to making the seemingly impossible possible. We stand at the intersection of the values of humanity with the value of technology. Inspire for Impact, the podcast, is a place where we have conversations with inspirational entrepreneurs, community leaders, and representatives of organisations who are boldly creating a future by design. The good, the bad, the warts, and the inspiration. We're leading the way to be the change we want to see in the world. Conversations that bring to light the magic that is happening on a daily basis all over the globe. Hello, and on behalf of my fellow guests today, welcome to this podcast. My name is Fiona Anson, and I'm delighted to lead the discussion today on lifelong learning and how we need to embrace that future to make sure that we're keeping pace with the changing skill requirements for industry for the future. I'm currently working with the University of Technology, Sydney, looking at future skills and how the university can help prepare organisations and their people for the future, including what type of learning needs to be designed to effectively do that. Now, with me today is Dan Fish and Ian Thompson. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks very much. Would you both like to introduce yourself? Ian, let's start with you. Yes, um, well, wonderful to be here. Um, I, my name is Ian Thompson. I'm head of the UTS Animal Logic Academy. So we, we sit at, uh, at UTS, but um, as the name suggests, we, you know, we, we don't actually run a degree in, in, in animal psychology, which is often the assumption. <laughs> um, animal Logic is probably Australia's leading 3D animation studio. Uh, people will know their work from, you know, Happy Feet, the Lego movies, um, Peter Rabbit. Um, the industry is booming in Australia um, and, uh, you know, we really need to sort of uh, bring up the workforce to meet that need. So we're a collaboration between the University of Technology, Sydney and, and Animal Logic. So a bit of a pilot in a way to really sort of um, experiment and explore um, industry focused and industry led uh, learning and education. Thanks, Ian. And Dan, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure, and uh, pleasure to be here. Um, so yeah, Dan Fish from Go One. Um, we are a um, technology um, content aggregation eco learning ecosystem business um, and have been around for about six years. Um, the easiest way to sort of think about us is that Spotify for learning, but um, ultimately what we're looking to do is create more effectiveness and efficiency in that learning space. Um, I've worn a number of hats since we started the business, uh, but most recently and really excitingly, um, focusing on broader education. So um, the business itself uh, really looks at organisational learning, professional development, employer-employee type models. Um, however, what I'm looking to do now as we've grown and scaled is to look at broader opportunities in the education space. So that really covers off four key areas, um, K to 12, uh, vet and higher ed, um, big organisations and corporates looking to take a more societal view at upskilling and educating people, um, such as your AWSs, your Microsofts, your PwCs, etc. Uh, and then finally, industry bodies and associations. So really looking at this broader application of learning and, and lifelong learning um, and, and how we can support that. So it's uh, great to talk about that today. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. Um, so let me start with a question to you both, and I'll start it with you, Dan, to start with. There's no getting past the fact that the, the future is going to look very different from the past, and I think the last sort of 18 months has been an, an absolute illustration of that. 
Um, what lessons do you think that we need to consider from the past and what do we need to rethink for the future in terms of um, how we need to make sure that we are continually keeping pace with what we need to know to succeed? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And, you know, we could probably spend the entire podcast talking just about that. But um, I think the reality is there's there's probably, like for, for me personally, I mean, there's an overarching piece to this where um, education is such a fundamental and important um, industry um, at a societal level. So it creates a lot of complexity and sensitivity um, when we think about that. And what I mean is, um, if we think about a lot of the social issues that affect society or a lot of the problems that we face, more often than not, we track that back to a lack of an educated populace. So um, unlike other industries, there is a lot to think about and consider when we think about how we evolve and how we change education. So um, I am mindful and empathetic that it's not as simple as, as we always think and we can't always move as quick as we'd like. Now, that being said, um, I think there's a lot of things that, that we can change and, and move forward with. And I think there's been a lot of examples um, in the last 10 to 20 years uh, where that is the case. Um, I'll sort of quote one of my heroes, Ken Robinson, who I, which I always like to do from his Creative Schools book, which talks very much around this current model of institutional education wasn't really supposed to be here. It was very effective during the Industrial Revolution where we were needing to train and skill up people quickly. Um, but it, it really isn't um, appropriate for this modern age where we have so much more technology and, and learning exposure and experience under our belts. And there is so much more that we can do. And we really sort of now know that it's not this one size fits all approach, mass education, you know, everyone learns in different ways. And that's a really interesting thing for me. And probably one of the first lessons around that educational piece is that learning is so subjective and to try and force everyone into sort of one curriculum or, or one way of thinking is, is really dangerous um, and not helpful for, for evolving the space. So I think that's yeah, probably- We've done it that way, haven't we? We've done it that way for hundreds of years. It's never, never changed. Yeah, and look, it's, it, and we have, and, and look, it's, it's served us well to, to a point, but, you know, if I look back over the ages, you know, even back to, you know, when books in, you know, a couple of millennia AD in China was first sort of made their appearance, um, or we look at Johannes Gutenberg when he invented the printing press back in 1415, or even more recently, um, you know, with um, the invention of, of the internet and the World Wide Web um, by Sir Tim Berners-Lee, um, information has sort of started to scale and our access to information is really scaled. And so I think, you know, when we look back over the last couple of hundred years, and, and particularly to my point before around the, the industrial sort of revolution, what we have accessible to us now is far greater than the information that we had accessible then. And so, you know, it really begs the question about whether that model is still really fit for purpose. Um, and it, personally, uh, you know, I don't, I don't see it. So I think, you know, when we look at this question and, and when we try and answer it, it's really important to think about where we've been um, to the points I just made earlier, um, where we are right now and where we're going. And I think where we are right now is a really interesting part of this answer because um, having been exposed just more deeply in the last couple of years in specifically in education and very much around K to 12 as well, there have been some really exciting green shoots that have started to pop up. And so um, I think a lot of this learning lifelong actually starts at that institutional level, because from my personal perspective, I think a lot of people feel that when they finish school or when they finish uh, a higher ed or university, that's their learning done. And when in reality, we all 
know that that's just the beginning and there's another hopefully number of decades for an individual to be able to learn and and actually I think a lot of us do do that we just we're just not sure of of, of what that looks like so even podcasts YouTube and so on these are all learning experiences that I know from from our perspective at Go and we're really interested to capture and use that data so I think you know there's conversations happening at the moment like the Shergold review which talks about this concept of a learner profile for students versus an ATAR score which I totally agree with and certainly for Go One is a big piece where we want to help understand and support this lifelong journey from a tooling perspective and the profile sits at the heart of that. Um, I think another thing that we've sort of been able to look at when we start to face forward or look to the future is this continuation of technological advancement as well as data and I know data is a scary word for, for a number of people. Uh, I'm, I'm, the, I'm an optimist when it comes to it. I do think we're still at that for, very formative stage of how we apply data in a number of industries. And we've seen in certain scenarios where we have this algorithmic bias that really impacts the ability to rely on it meaningfully. And, and I think the same is true for education. I'm not suggesting that we rely on data to suggest all of our learning because we don't want to lose those sort of little light bulb moments where we get this sort of left of field learning experience that can really change our lives. But um, I do think in the future, when we look at this data play, um, it's gonna be a really interesting one. And I, optimistically, I think it's gonna be very much around sort of self-sovereignty and how we look to um, empower the individual to take that data and apply it to certain scenarios. So I think that piece is gonna be really important to be able to understand and personalize the learning experience for individuals. So we can look at what, they, what they're good at and bad at, what they enjoy and start to tailor the learning experience and personalize the learning experience based more on that and less on a curriculum. Now, there's a lot of work to do, but I think, as I said earlier, we're starting to see some of these great green shoots pop through that, that really is starting to drive us in that direction. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I'm gonna and let you jump in in a minute, Ian, but it's really interesting some of these comments that you're making because I was only looking at some data this morning about um, people, the ability for, to, to uh, move people from one career to another, and it had all been based on data, and it was so flawed, it was ridiculous. You know, it was saying, oh, truck drivers could be really good childcare workers. <laughs> like, in what universe? You know, like, it's because it's based on some weird data set that somebody's used. So I think we need to consider, you know, going back to what you were saying, what is the propensity of people? What do they love to do? How do we harness their passion? Because if we can harness passion, people are hungry to learn. And so we need to bring all of that stuff into our thinking as well, not just looking at data and saying, what might somebody be good at or what, what is the next skill set they need to learn? But how do we bring all those, those kind of outside things in as well? So it's a, it's a really, really interesting area as we start to imagine what learning might look like and how we might reinvent that moving forward, which I'm going to come to that a bit later on. But Ian, what are your thoughts on this whole where we need to go? Because you're in an industry that's evolving very, very rapidly. Yeah, you know, and I think um, the interesting point is that, you know, we've, we've there's a lot of fantastic things that we've um, come from in the past. Um, but this whole idea that it's not, we're not looking for a one, a one size fits all solution. You know, I think the future is about um, variety and adaptability, versatility, transdisciplinarity, you know, this whole thing that um, not only is sort of innovation born from our ability to step outside what we know and experience something in a different way from a different field in a different context, you know, that's very, very exciting. And the, the exciting thing about technology is it's making 
it's making um, these many different forms of learning um, accessible to people. So people can customize their learning. They can, they can choose the way they want to learn. I, I think it's important in this discussion that we don't sort of just jettison, you know, what we, our experience from the past. You know, I think there are some formal long forms of learning that still work for certain people in certain contexts. Um, we sort of find that that's really valuable for the um, a, a solid establishment of foundational knowledge and skill. Um, but on top of that, you know, you want to add flexibility. Um, you know, people want to do a, do a um, micro credential or a short course or do something online or self-directed. Um, all of, I think the thing that we, we, what we have to do is we have to facilitate all of those things being possible. So users, learners, um, members of society can engage in the learning that's relevant to them um, in a way that's relevant to them, you know, and I think it's, and, and this is the exciting thing about technology is that it's making that um, possible. You know, I, I, you know, the stories that you hear how, uh, you know, many people in Africa that's, that, that may, may not have a lot of resources, but they'll have a mobile phone and they'll have an internet connection, you know, and, and that gives them access to knowledge and learning. And, you know, this, this, this could be a much more effective pathway for certain people in certain situations than having to enroll in a formal university. But, you know, I won't, don't want to discredit that either, but I think that's the exciting thing about the, the future. It, it is eclectic and, you know, it's a little bit sort of, it's a, a bit like the way, uh, you know, art, art movements have developed over, over time. Traditionally, because we were more limited in the, in the sort of channels of communication we had, we had sort of streams or movement. Whereas these days, it's so eclectic, you know, things are being done in, in a whole lot of different areas. Um, you know, if, I, if I use that, that, that example from the art world, and I think uh, it sort of works as a little bit of a metaphor, metaphor for, um, for, for what can and is happening with the many, many different ways of learning that are, that are being developed. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think your, your point about uh, some of the longer forms of learning, because I know this is moved towards, you know, we need shorter, sharper forms of learning so that we could more rapidly upskill. There's definitely a place for that foundational learning. There's definitely a place for the, you know, longer forms of learning. And in some sectors, they're absolutely necessary. For example, I don't want to go and see a doctor who's done three micro-credentials and has now got a, you know, a medical degree. I mean, I need someone who, you know, has done 10 years of study and knows all of about human anatomy so there's you know or, or if I go into a building I want to know that it's been built by an engineer who's got you know the right amount of, of qualifications so there's definitely that longer form of learning is still very very relevant but I agree that I think that there's a lot of shorter forms of learning that are now becoming equally as important in some cases more important so we we can rapidly upskill I just wanted to add you know I think the other thing too it's it's really important to consider the phase of life that someone is at. So, you know, there's, there's often a phase of your life that a, a long form of learning might be appropriate for you. Um, at, at a different phase in life, you might be much more interested in, in short forms of learning. You might be established in your career. You might need to, um, to, to continue to earn an income. You might have a family or a mortgage, <laughs> you know. Um, so it's, this is why it's interesting to see it as a, as a, a constantly evolving and de developing um, uh, environment, not only societally and culturally, but also personally in someone's own personal life journey. Yeah, if I, just, yeah so if I can just round off on, on that one, because I think it's really important, especially over the last 18 months, because I think what we've seen and the language that we've seen banded around is this sort of reimagination of vet, reimagination of higher ed. And 
um, con concern, um, the concern that I have is that um, more often than not, it's about more accredited or award-based content being thrown into the market or nano degrees, which people are, you know, uh, universities will call micro-credentials. And so um, for me, I think the big gap and when we look at the broader population, and I think leading on from Ian's point, is that you need those seedling components to these pathways that people can do that isn't going to cost them $1,000, $2,000, isn't going to take up six months of their time because they're either mentally not in the headspace, they don't financially have the security to do so. So what can we do to start that momentum, start that journey for them, be it informal, formal learning? But I think, again, it really, you, you know, you both talked about it really nicely, is that it's sort of being able to structure these pathways that don't have to start with the long form that and i totally agree the long form um learning is critical and there's tickets to play like like you say fiona doctors and surgeons and engineers but i think for the for the vast majority of people and a lot of the people that are going to be affected not just through covid but various stages of of impact at society is to how do we get these people into get them going with some momentum and more often than not it isn't that big you know expensive structure it's just giving them information giving them um, pockets of sort of micro learning that they can do just to get the wheels moving I think the other thing we also need to consider is is the whole transition of the workforce piece and you know there are more and more jobs that are being displaced by technology and so there are more and more people that are looking that to migrate their careers. And I think there's been studies done where they say, you know, <clears throat> the average person moving forward is going to have, you know, 17 different jobs over five different careers. How do we make that easier for people? You know, what are the skills that we need for the future that not only make it easier for people to do their current jobs, but also easier to be able to migrate to new jobs? Obviously, there's this whole area of transferable skills or soft skills. So the ability to think critically, the ability to solve problems, the ability to communicate, to present well, you know, all of those sorts of resilient skills, adaptability skills are all incredibly important. And, and it's been great to see all of education focusing on the importance of those skills and the development of those skills. But what do you both think are some of the other skills that we might need to um, make sure that we include in learning as we move forward? Um, let me start with you, Ian. Yeah, look, that's a you know it's a great um, point, and I think this is um, this is our relationship te to technology is really really important in this conversation. It's important and it's not important. Um, you know, as, as Dan was saying in pre-industrial revolution, people would uh, be trained in a technology and that would define their career for their whole lifetime. Um, it, these days, you we have to accept, we have to understand that the technologies that we're using will change quickly you know within probably even the space of you know two or three years under five years so the whole idea of defining yourself through um, the technology that you learn or your career is is essentially flawed um, it's it's there's a duality in it you you'll you'll need that expertise probably to get into the industry um, at a junior level with a certain level of uh, specialized uh, knowledge and skill in that area but you have to clearly understand that, that that technology will change. So it's it's these things about teaching the principles of, of agility, um, as you mentioned, um, problem solving, um, soft skills in terms of being able to work um, in, in large collaborative teams with project-driven work. They're really, really essential. Um, and it's not to sort of say that we have to, you know, 
um, it's important to understand that the technologies will, will get us into roles and into industries. Um, but um, it's important to understand, I think, as a, and keep um, people's eyes very open and give them that knowledge and skill how to adapt and adjust and change and to see the value as well as if they step across into other areas, you know. And I think that will give, give people also a very um, vibrant, exciting career. Uh, and I think that's the thing that we'll, we'll see more innovation across the board societally and culturally. Dan, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think, look, we, we sort of pushed down this path early when we talked about um, industry and technology disrupting the workforce. Um, I think, you know, again, I'm excited about the prospects that, that future technology brings to, to, to the world. Um, I think what that does do, though, is reinforces the sort of human centric skills that sometimes people will refer to as soft skills, because those are the ones that, that all of that efficiency and technology um, will not necessarily be able to replicate. We, we, we had our global sales kickoff a, a week or two ago, and we had an amazing not-for-profit come in and do a bit of a keynote there um, called Library for All. And it really, in all of this technology and, and modern age thinking, it, it, what they were really focused on is, is literacy with children, right? And the importance of storytelling. And um, it's just something that you forget when you're blessed with a, you know, a, 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 an upbringing, like I suspect a lot of us have relatively, where we get access to sort of, we, this just becomes, uh, that's totally normal and given. Whereas in a lot of cultures and countries that isn't. And, so I think from my perspective, you know, this, it, it was just a really nice reminder of some of the core skills that even as we go up, grow up and go on, like that ability to tell a story rather than just spew out data is, is really critical. And, and that's going to be difficult, right, in the future for when we see these technological advancements. I mean, I can't imagine a time in the too near term where, you know, a, a computer is able to tell as good a story off the cuff as, as we are. So I think there's a big push in that area. And I know from, you know, even talking to some amazing thought leaders in the K to 12 space who are really sort of, you know, setting the, the foundations that emotional, you know, things like emotional intelligence, empathy, um, intuition, innovate, like all of these things are stuff that they want to be able to really reinforce at school, um, you know, as well as the curriculum. So I think these are all things that will continue to, to go on through life and, and skill sets that will need to, to, to evolve as well, so. Yeah, I could not agree with you more. Um, now, you both mentioned something that I just want to pick up on, and that is this, the whole technical skills and the, and the very rapid evolution of technical skills and the need for us to keep continually abreast of those skills. Um, I think as part of that, I think we as individuals are all realising that we are going to have to make sure that we're continually upskilling ourselves, we're continually being, uh, you know, upskilling our education and making sure, indulging in education to make sure that we um, are keeping those skills up to date because they, they change so quickly, especially technology skills. But where do you both think industry play in this? So do you think industry have really grasped this concept of lifelong learning yet? And, and what do you see as their current commitment or perhaps future commitment to lifelong learning for their employees? Let me start with you, Dan. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good question. It's actually um, a question I asked a panel of clients of ours recently is is um, from an organizational perspective, what their view is on lifelong learning, because I think um, historically, if I look at sort of L&D functions as an example, 
they're very much focused on the here and now. Like we've got these people, you know, average tenure for a, for a person within a company now, I think is three years or three and three quarter years, whatever it is. Um, and obviously the organizations have traditionally been very focused in on, right, what do we need to get out of them? What are our goals and objectives for this 12 months? And focusing a lot of the upskilling and, and development opportunities around that. What buoyed me somewhat though, when I asked that question is that um, a number of these organizations are absolutely thinking about the lifelong learning um, opportunities for their employees and are starting to realize more and more now that um, you know, it's not just about the, the learnings that they can provide for the job that they can do now. Obviously, that's important. And I'm not naive enough to believe that, you know, they pay the wage. And so there's some return on that wage. But I think it's, it's, it's great to hear that more and more now people are thinking about the future success for their employees, whether it's with them or not, and the impact that that has at a societal level and not just for society, but also acts as a great way for those individuals to be able to sort of act as, as recommend that, you know, recommend for that business. So I think the same works through industry as well. I, the one thing that I would, that I'm sort of a little bit nervous about, and I think this goes back to us as individuals as well, is that organizations probably don't have a real grasp on what we mean when we say lifelong learning. And I think that's something that, you know, we, we, we need to support and help them understand better. Um, and I think, you know, even down to the individuals, I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily have an understanding of what lifelong learning is. So I think supporting and this again, I, I feel that this is actually one of the great roles that institutional education, whether it's uni probably more so in the university and vet space, they have a fantastic opportunity to engage corporate um, to be able to provide some of that. And I know, for example, Fiona, some of the great work that you've done at UTS, where you've worked with some real sort of pillars of the corporate world in Australia is to help them understand what that looks like and what they should be looking for when they're thinking about lifelong learning for their people. Yeah, although I would agree with you that I think a lot of organisations still don't really grasp the concept of lifelong learning. It, for them, it's a, what do we need to get to the next point? So, and what does the next point look like? And I think, I st still think in the corporate sector, there's a little bit of <clears throat> confusion and lack of surety around what that even looks like what what do those capability you know we talk a lot about work mapping workforce capability and what do those capabilities look like but i and i think people are still struggling organizations are still struggling to define what those capabilities are let alone then design pathways to those capabilities let alone design the ongoing pathway for lifelong learning so i think we're still very much in the early stages of from an organizational perspective looking at what that means moving forward um ian in your industry what's happening with with learning because i know in the in the arts um which i think is is kind of where your industry falls uh, definitely there's you know technology is very very strong but where do you see learning lifelong learning and how that fits into particularly into the art sector yeah look you know I, th I think the whole notion i guess very superficially you know lifelong learning um seems to be more of a, a personal commitment a personal journey i think for industry partners and and you know creative organizations as well they're often asked themselves the question um why like what what does that mean for us what's the value in that and you know dan and and you also identify that often industry has more sort of short-term goals in terms of what do we want to achieve with this team, with this year, with this project. I think the, the narrative around that for industry is really understanding the value of investing in the development of your, um, of your workforce. 
is that uh, rather than seeing employees as a, as a commodity that you need to achieve a certain um, goal or a certain task, if you invest in them, if you give them that space to develop personally and professionally, they will add value to your business in unexpected ways. You know, maybe they will grow into roles that neither you or they can even imagine yet. But that's the value in that, that, that conversation around you know, I think the the terminology lifelong learning isn't the right sort of uh, yeah narrative to be using with industry, but it, it's about investing in this culture of um, of professional and personal development. And you know, it, it costs so much money to uh, to recruit and employ someone new, train them up, get them up to speed. There's so much value in um, the employees that you have sitting there right now. Why not invest? You know. Um, a relatively smaller amount, you know, compared with the, the employment and recruitment and training costs for a new employee in, in, in letting that per person develop and grow and, and, and allowing that to go beyond the definitions of the current role, because I think there can be unexpected um, wins for the, for the organization. I think the challenge too is for um, small to medium organizations. And this is where there, there can be really interesting partnerships with you know, other institutions like universities where a small to, to medium sized organization might not have or, or, or feel that they've got the money to invest in high level um, professional development of their staff. And also when, when, when that training is done internally, it stays within a bit of a bubble. It's like, we know what we know, we'll teach you what we know. Um, the moment you step out of that, you're exposing to people to what we don't know, which is the exciting area for, for innovation and growth. So um, I think there's really interesting opportunities of, of organizations, you know, small to medium specifically, but um, also larger organizations to partner with universities and, and research centers so they can um, help give their employee pool exposure to thoughts, research, data, far beyond the experience that have access to in that organization. And I guess for, for creative and arts institutions, it's about, um, it's about um, allowing that happen. You know, funding often, often with artistic projects, budgets are really tight. So um, probably to be able to do that on a broader sector, we'd have to lean on, on, on more sort of, you know, um, third party government support um, for, for those industries across the board um, to, to help um, develop that culture of, 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 of crossover learning and sharing and um, across a, a broader spectrum than just that um, particular unit or project or business. Yeah, interesting thoughts, interesting thoughts. Okay, let me, let me ask you both to get your crystal balls out and think about uh, five years time. Um, do you, where do you see lifelong learning will be? How do you think we might have embraced it? And what do you think it might look like that maybe that it may be different to learning today? Or indeed, what would you like it to look like in five years time? Start with you, Ian. I think, I mean, we'll, we will continue to see um, uh, a development and a broadening of opportunities uh, for lifelong learning. Um, I think a really important part of it is um, having a, a, an essential foundational cultural change with, with, within a, a generation. You know, I think um, there's, you know, got to be a change from this idea that, you know, and I've got, I've got children who are, you know, at that sort of 20 to 20 to 30, they, they do, they do their undergrad, they might do a postgrad and they said, that's it, you know, I've done it. And I've said, no, no, no. like, that's just the start, you know, 
Um, so I guess it's ingraining this whole idea um, generationally that there's, there's, there's a value in never stopping learning. Um, I think that's an important thing to do. And um, I think the understanding that we need a matrix of um, opportunities to develop knowledge and skill and technical skill, um, but also just as importantly, the ability to um, think broadly, uh, solve problems, um, particularly very, very difficult situations, whether they're in a professional context or a personal context. So it's that sort of level of learning that I think is really important. And probably the key word, I think, you know, it'd be fantastic if you'd run a course in courage. <laughs> um, I think many of us have been in situations think, oh, they've just updated that. They've just changed the technology that I'm using for that. Why, why, you know, I was so comfortable. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't have the courage or, you know, the energy to, you know, we've got to change that mindset and sort of say, oh, great. There's a new, there's something new. There's something new to learn. I've got the courage to go in and, uh, and, and, and learn that new thing and develop further. I, f I find that my students at the, um, in their Masters of Animation and Visualization course that we run, um, I'm impressed by their fearlessness um, between uh, creative pro uh, tasks and technical tasks. So from my generation, there was always like, oh, I'm a technical person, I'm not creative, or I'm a creative person, I'm not technical. There'd be this sort of fear. Um, this, you know, th this generation I'm finding have no fear about crossing that line and that's exciting to see and you, and it's amazing to see what they produce um, as a result of that fearlessness yeah i think the other thing that comes out of this generation and i've got a 26 year old son um, who interestingly said to me when he finished his degree that was it he was never going to study again uh and i felt like saying i've got news for you um but um and, and he subsequently funnily enough, enrolled in, you know, more study, um, which has now become, you know, just, just a way of life. But I think that whole, um, that this whole next generation are very fearless and they are very curious, which I think is really important and is a, is a result of what they've been exposed to. So in our day, in my day, going back, I had to go and get a book to discover something, whereas they've got data coming to them and information coming to them on their mobile device 24-7, which makes them curious to know more. Um, how do you think that all fits, Dan, into what this future might look like? Yeah, I think it's a good, and, and I agree with Ian, I think the framing for me is always sort of, where is it today and, and, and how do we see that today? Um, and I totally agree, and I think we touched on it earlier as well, it's, um, there's probably a disconnect as to, to what this lifelong learning is, because I think the vast majority of people feel that that learning stops at a certain given time, as opposed to it being continual. It's interesting because I've got a 13 year old daughter who's in year eight at the moment. She's just going through the elective process. And it's it, for me, this is really interesting, right, because this is kind of the perfect time to be reinforcing this very beginning of the lifelong learning journey when they're starting to make these decisions. And, you know, this, it, it, it possibly happens earlier. And I've had a number of discussions with people how we should be thinking about this at kindy and before, but I think it's, it's, it's how we can frame up and start to talk to this next generation about and reinforce them at the time. Like it's okay to make decisions now that aren't necessarily about where you want to be in 20 years. And I think to your point, Fiona, it's, it's providing that that safe environment to be curious to try new things is going to be really important in the future and again sort of as we go through those milestones of you know that fork in the road when they finish 
grade 12 and they're going to go and work or they're not and they go off it's 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 a really important time so I'm reminded when you talk about your children I mean, mine's a little bit younger but um it's you know it's that 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 support and awareness for them that this is going to be something that that goes on for hopefully for, for the rest of their lives and I think the other thing for me to help with that awareness and to and to help really cement this the importance of lifelong learning is is its correlation to career right so i think as we start to see um you know if if we can help highlight and reinforce reinforce the importance of of what lifelong learning means to the career life cycle then i think we start to get a little bit more traction because i think everyone for the majority of people their learning experiences as they go through life will correlate to their job whether it's to get better understanding of what they're doing to go for that promotion to change industries so i think you know there's going to be a really important component to that that i think and, and there's some great work being done out there by some really interesting organizations there's one in israel called the velocity network which is basically this whole sort of data sovereignty sort of layer piece where individuals will have all of this data that they can free up to the industries and let them access it and then they can in turn be fed specific sort of opportunities and so on but uh, the conversation that we've had with them is then how do you thread that lifelong learning component into it so that we can be really effective in stitching and mapping that together and, and I think that's a that's a really important piece that I'd like to see start to come that will come to the floor there's also an important component when it comes to learning and that is sort of um accreditation and credentialing and I don't mean that necessarily by the official channels but just some recognition of those learning experiences as they go and so for me there's some great organizations out there like Credential Engine in the US who are sort of trying to figure out how we can have this um, you know sort of landscape where we can recognize these sort of stackable learning experiences that people are doing that doesn't necessarily just have to be related to a curriculum or, or, or accredited or award uh, based recognized um, learning but also just to be able to upskill in certain areas so I think you know I'd like we're not there yet and we won't be for a couple of years I suspect but you know in the next five I'd love to start to see some of that that framing and mapping um, come into play that starts to really shine a light on what's important for those individuals to be doing as well as what they're interested in. Yeah, and you talked about that whole you know, micro-credentialing or badging or, you know, digital kind of recognition of learning. And, and I know there's been a lot of talk and government are talking a lot about a skills passport, you know, and something that you can take that isn't just a recognition of your formal learning, but it's also a recognition of maybe your peer-to-peer -peer learning, your on-the-job learning, all of that sort of thing. So it'd be interesting to see how that evolves moving forward as well. Um, I want to just jump back to something that we all brought up, which was our children. And, uh, and, and a topic that's very controversial, but I want to talk about it anyway, because I think it's of, of interest. And I think anyone who's listening to this um, podcast who wants to jump in and send us comments on this sort of stuff, it'd be really interesting to know your thoughts as well. Because every time I bring this up, it's, it's always a, a mad point of discussion. Everybody wants to talk about it. And that is the HSC. I want to talk about does that style of destination learning where you've got to talk about, you know, uh, we're all talking about, you know, this one point in time where you're measured as to how well or not you, you do with your learning. How valid is that moving forward, certainly talking about lifelong learning? And are we setting up a dissonance in terms of, hang on, you're measured at a point in time. No, actually, no, we're expecting you to continue to be measured all through the, your career. How, how relevant or not is the HSC moving forward? 
I mean, I'm I'm happy to just um, have an initial go at that. I, I think um, this assessment process is critical, and I think assessment, whether it's K to twelve or higher education, is one of the critical factors that these institutions play in the ongoing development and learning of these individuals. So I think um, some form of sort of assessment is important. I'd suggest that having having such a focus on a defined point is dangerous, and in certain instances ends up seeing a, a separate, uh, unfair advantage possibly played for others. And I think it's it's uh, there's there's some other pieces to the puzzle. I feel that can act as a great leveler that are thankfully being talked about at the moment. So I know like the Shergold review, for example, that's really looking at the learner profile piece and trying to look at you know, 12 years of data versus a, a very defined point um, is something that, that we're really interested in discussing more. Um, I think, you know, from a personal perspective, I think ongoing assessment at times through the process and being able to tweak as you go is probably more important than, than having that sort of eggs in one basket towards the end. Uh, I think the good news, though, from, from my personal perspective is that conversation is being haven't had, not just by you know, thought leaders, but by government departments and, and institutional bodies. And so I think everyone's on the same page now and it kind of feeds into the importance that, and we may get to it in a, another time around the importance that data plays. But yeah, I think from my personal perspective, I'd love to see more of that conversation around the learner profile and being able to look more holistically at the, the student or the child's learning over an extended period of time. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's really important. And and Ian, I know you, you know, both you and I have had children that have gone through the pressure of an HSC um, and you know, seen them them and their peers all kind of, you know, stake their everything about this one moment in time. And I remember having a conversation with some of my son's friends and I said, look, the minute it's over and you get your ATAR, it's total, total irrelevant for the rest of your life. Um, so don't overly stress about it. There are a whole bunch of ways to skin the cat if you want to get into university or you want to study certain career paths. It's not the be all and end all. What would your comments be around the relevance of how we measure learning moving forward? Yeah, I think you make a really good point that, you know, that that experience, the HSC experience, you know, isn't isn't echoed in any other way in, in your life. You know, doesn't that indicate how irrelevant that experience is? You know, and I, I do think that, you know, it's important to have the benchmark, uh, not only for the students themselves, but for, you know, um, educators, for employers. They need something, you know, they don't want to have to go and analyze, you know, you know, someone you know, over the, the, the period of their life, they, they need some sort of benchmark. So it's a, I think it's important to understand that that's almost a service externally as much as it is personally. But I think also... Is Ian frozen? Yeah, I think we may have, we think we may have lost Ian. Sorry, I didn't know whether it was uh, me yeah. <laughs> or you. I think we may have lost Ian. I think uh, I think what he was saying was that you know that one point in time, um, as he said, is it's it, it no in no way reflects any other point of uh, of your learning life. So why make it the one thing that we measure? You want as well as the psychological pressure that it puts on on you know people that are very very young. And certainly, I I must say in this particular environment that those that are studying the HSC at the moment during COVID, my hearts go out to you because it is a really difficult time for them all right now and uh and and i guess points out the flaws in a system like this yeah i totally i think i think you know it really sort of loops back to to what we were saying earlier and that we're sort of working in the constructs of of of, of a system that um you know sort of dates back a long time and i think now we're in an age where 
those same um, structures probably aren't doing, um, you know, the next generation of, 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 of workers, you know, and students um, any any benefits at all, really. I mean, I, I think, I, and that's not to say that the, the, the system is totally flawed. I just think that this way of assessment and this pressure, as you say, um, Fiona, that, that we're sort of applying to people um, is difficult. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think, um, you know, being able, adversity and challenge and being um, tested and, and feeling that pressure is part of life. And so I, there are components of it that I think, um, you know, putting uh, for students experiencing is important because life isn't simple. There's th there's times and challenges that you'll go through and it's how, how we get through that. But I think what, um, and again, just to reinforce the point that you guys made before is that there isn't really anything else like it that we go through out in, in that societal level. Yes, there's challenges for promotions. Yes, there's changes in jobs and trying to do better. And But I, I think there's a far more effective and, and considered and considerate way to be able to do it than, than what we currently have today. Absolutely. Um, well, I think we're just about out of time. So thank you so much, Dan and Ian, for your time today. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's been one, and I know that we could, we've all met before and we've we've spent hours talking about this, and I'm sure we could spend more time, and maybe we will spend more time um, on another episode talking about this. Thank you so much for your time today, and uh, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks very much.